Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, today I have a very special guest, Russell Ramsey. So for those that don't know, Russell is uh, an ECD who recently left JWT after 10 years, uh, or roughly 10 years, working there as a, uh, on an eclectic mix of clients from KitKat and Kipling and Kenko through to Kleenex, Listerine and Shell, uh, among many others. Prior to JWT, Russell worked at BBH, the legendary creative agency in London, for 17 years. In 2015, Campaign listed Russell as one of the top 10 creative directors, uh, which is no surprise as he's received some of the highest accolades both in the UK and around the world, including a gold at the Fab Awards, Cannes Lions, DNAD, British Arrows and Creative Circle, among others. Uh, is there anything you haven't done? Russell, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Hi. Is there anything I haven't done? Uh, <laughs> I've pretty much done everything, yeah. So I had, you know, DNAD was always the holy grail and i was lucky enough to kind of to win a, a black pencil uh and then um you know then then there's can and i've i've variously done well well at can done well and i've done badly and uh that i guess that's how it goes for so, you know it's, a, it's an up and down business advertising sure so uh, I know that you're on garden leave at the moment. I only learned yeah. this word the other day. So for those that don't know, it basically means you get to live the passive income dream for a little while <laughs> and um, so that you don't steal all the clients. So I thought we'd start off easy and just ask, uh, what have you actually been filling your time with recently? Well, I, I've done some some interesting things. I've also done a collection of very mundane things. Right. So I've you know been to various galleries. I've been to Paris. Uh, I have a place in Dorset, so I literally have been doing some gardening. Right. <laughs> um, and I finally f- fixed the light in the fridge, which has been broken for about nine months. So, right, so... Um, yeah, so an interesting mix of... 
So not quite the brawler life, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bit of cycling around Richmond Park. Oh, very nice. Um, so tell me why you decided to work in advertising in the first place. Like, what was the catalyst? <clears throat> I guess I'm. people are all surprised when I, when, I, when I say I will tell the story of I wanted to work in advertising from being about 11 or 12 years old. Right. And a lot of people who get into advertising either fall into it or get interested in it at uni or art college or whatever but I always wanted to do it and I was very I used to look at the Sunday time supplements I used to watch TV used to love seeing billboards Heineken things like that and and I was so interested in it um that I sort of mapped out a, 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 a journey whereby I would move to London go to art school, do a graphics degree, and then get a job in an advertising agency. And um, that's what I did, although but it wasn't what, quite as easy as, as I What was it exactly about it? Was it the fact that you were convincing people? or? I, I guess I loved design. I loved the visual... You know the, the the visual design of it, the typography. It was just it was what I was interested in. I my exercise books, even if I didn't know what I was writing about, were always looked fantastic. The the diagrams and the and the handwriting was always it was always beautifully laid out. Yeah. Even if it was for you know history or biology or something, it was sure. always well, how it looked was you know was what I was interested in. Yeah. So why uh, advertising instead of say graphics, for example? Well, I was I was very interested in graphics, right. and and but I guess I li- I liked the graphics as related to ads, billboards, and just seemed like a bigger thing. You know, you you do a piece of graphics, and it would be a small brochure or something. But if you if you were involved in advertising, you you could see it on the millions of people would see the thing that you'd done. So I I guess I was drawn to it for that reason as well i've always had a kind of similar thing when people ask me about logo design or something and there's the choice between doing a really beautiful small thing and i always say i'd rather design you know that really mass market brand but you know redesign something that's going to be seen by lots of people so Mm. I, i have the same draw in that respect um you worked at BBH for 17 years, which, yep. uh, like many, kind of regard it as one of the most creative agencies of the, you know, advertising up to now. Uh, and then you moved to JWT, which, like many, would con- uh, consider to be a bit more of a machine, a much bigger thing. Mm. Um, why did you choose to make that transition? And uh, was there a reason for it? I suppose there's two, there's two parts. One is a career, career pro- progression. Um, I was lucky enough to to arrive at PBH when it was it was a hot shop and everybody wanted to work there. Um, and then it grew and it became more successful. It became global. It started to tra- attracting bigger clients. Uh, and I sort of followed them on that journey. I got promoted and I was in the end deputy ECD. Uh, there was John O'Keefe. There was John Hegarty. Uh, so you know, I kind of. Although I was happy there, I kind of thought, not that I was institutionalised, but I thought maybe I need to try something else and actually run run the thing myself. And I, and I was offered the job at, at JWT and decided to take it. And it was, I guess you could call it more serious. Um, they had clients. That, so I was moving from Audi, Levi's to HSBC, Shell, etc. So... Trickier, bigger, more corporate kind of clients. So it was that was that was a change as well. Did you prefer those? A bit more of a challenge, or did you like? Did you miss the? It's creativity? about growing up. You know, yeah. you can't. Um, 
you know, you, you, you can't be <laughs> hanging, you can't be down with the kids forever. And, you know, and I did links and Levi's and it was time to grow up to some extent. Well, that's actually interesting because I was going to ask you, like, what do you do to stay relevant, you know, within, it seems advertising is quite a young person's game, uh, at least in the very creative creative agencies, um, you know. I th- you know, I, I think in the, in the last four or five years at JWT, we... we had a really great record of recruiting new people, young people from college. So, we, you know, we would take four, six, seven, eight even grads into the creative department every every year and they would often start doing social media posts for us and then they would start working on briefs. So, so we, we had a sort of very healthy youth policy, if you like. Um, you know, I still believe in, in the fundamentals of what works and what doesn't work. So it's about, it's about having good people with new ideas, but then, you know, working with those ideas to to make them mature and effective as well. I mentioned in the intro that you've basically won every award uh, going. And so I'm curious to know kind of what's your next step and what is it that kind of keeps you getting up in the morning to do this? I'm still so interested in it, Anna, and I... You know, a lot of people ask me about, are you going to have a complete change of career? And honestly, I, I've been on garden leave for two or three months and I haven't found that thing quite yet. So um, I still think that I have a lot to offer and I'm interested in it and, and I've got so much knowledge. Um, yeah, so not probably not quite the same as I was doing before, but I think something similar. But that's interesting. So you actually, you did consider it. Considered like making a kind of a transition. Well, I think it's a natural. You know, when you leave a job after nine years, and the job I had before that was seventeen years, you think you think to yourself, "Well, is it time to to you know I don't I don't know what start making furniture or something or something <laughs> like that's what people do, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but I think maybe there was an expectation in other people that I might w- want. I've been yearning to build a boat for the last. 10 years well it's just it's not the case really so have you got your eyes on any places that you want to you want to try and know um <laughs> don't get don't I go think one, of, one of the one of the things about being on garden leave is, is you, that you're not, you're not really doing anything right. uh, but you know there are some options and some things that i'm considering which are a bit a bit different from what i was doing before interesting so after all these years i imagine that you've formulated what you believe is a, a you know a pretty good approach to advertising and what constitutes good work. I was wondering if you could maybe share that philosophy and explain why you think it works. I suppose I have I have a few simple things that, that I believe in. I, I believe in purity of the idea. Um, and this is one of the things I talk to creative people about. It's the idea, the whole idea, and nothing but the idea. And I think when you're when you're developing work, especially when in multi-channels, you can lose sight of what the idea is or you add things in there that aren't really relevant to the idea and it can muddy the waters and people don't quite get the idea because you put too much stuff in it. Um, so I think it's purity of, of idea. Um, there's a John Hegarty expression and he has many pearls of wisdom, but one of them is it's 80% idea, 80% execution. So I'm a massive believer in great execution once you've got a great idea you owe it to that idea to have a fantastic execution of it so yeah just just the 
there's no kind of um how can i explain this because the reason I'm digging with this is because that tends to be the kind of model amongst all advertising is, say, the idea. And do you think it is purely just the commitment to, to keeping it as strong as it could possibly be or pushing further than anyone will go to find a unique insight? I think everyone everyone says it's it's about keep it simple. So everyone, if, you get, if you talk about outdoor, for instance, and even digital outdoor, Everyone will agree that you need to keep it simple and you can only have a few words and blah, blah, blah. But then you walk down the street and every pulse you see has got too many words on it. So they're not, they're not living what, what they espouse, you know. So I think it's about challenging yourself to actually follow what you believe in and, and make sure that that manifests itself in the work. Uh, and the craft skills, I mean, I, I think be one of the great things about BBH and the success of BBH was everything was considered everything the execution was maximised the music the art direction the photography the typography everything was there to bring the idea to the fore but to make it beautiful and seductive you know it's kind of there's a seductive quality to great work it's not just oh that's a clever idea it has other things around it's like a beautiful car you know it's the headlights it's the body the shape of the body it's the headlights it's the steering wheel it's the seat it's it's all there to kind of seduce you into something, and I think that's what what great work does, whether it's design or advertising. Okay, uh, so let's go and talk about a few of your projects. So I've uh, had a little look through your kind of portfolio, I guess, online, yeah. uh, the stuff that I could find at least, and uh, there was a few that really came to uh, it, well excited me anyway. And so the first one I wanted to talk about was a recent Barocca campaign. Uh, oh, I'm not sure how recent it was, yeah. but. Um, the thing which I really liked about it was that you'd kind of everyone's interpretation of millennials is that we're kind of lazy and entitled and and in that campaign it seemed like you'd flipped it on its head and 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 made them the kind of the enemy but also powerful. Yes, uh, yes. that's the the I think it was it was a transport campaign on the London Underground and stuff and it was it was where. It was kind of comparing you and your situation to people who were massively more successful than you and then you needed to be on your... You know, the, the graduate who's got the degree from Oxford and goes to the gym and how you're going to... Barocca was the way that you could compete with them. You know, it was just a... It's a kind of cheeky take on, on, the, on, on, on the idea of, of why people need to be on their game, if you like. It's like you, you, you have the strategy of barocas to keep you on your game and make you feeling bigger ways so there's probably a hundred different ways you could execute that but that seemed like quite a cheeky unusual way yeah. of you know it wasn't, wasn't meant to be serious it was a kind of tongue-in-cheek it take did, it on, made, on it modern life I, it, which yeah. I, it's, it, very very few ads do i laugh at when i instantly see but again i think the thing that really resonated with me is that you've taken a different stance on our generation um so the second one I wanted to talk about was your project turning ash to art. Yes, which just blew me away. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, so just to kind of give a, uh, an overview of that, something had uh, burnt down, right? It was it was the Glasgow School of Art had a big fire, probably yeah. two and a half or three years ago, and it was a great uh, building of architectural uh, interest. And a lot of famous artists had gone there. I think there were six Turner Prize winners have been have been there. So it was obviously a very a very newsworthy event. 
uh, and very sad and and um, um, so what like who, who had so that's not or, or at least from the outset it doesn't look like it's attached to a client so whose no. idea was it to go for that I mean uh, you know within a creative department you have cl- you have clients and you have projects for clients you have small projects for clients initiatives for clients but also you, you encourage creatives to just have their own projects that they're interested in that are you know great um, vehicles for their for their creativity uh, and Bill and Giles our creative team at J- JWT had the idea of using the, the the burnt wood, the charcoal from the burnt wood from from the from the art school to create art and get famous artists to use the charcoal to make the art. Um, and it was one of those where it was instantly a good idea. Um, Dave Dye did some graphics around it. He designed the logo, and then of course you get into the the long haul of making it happen. Could we get the artists? Would the, would the Glasgow School of Art be interested in working with us on it? Could we get some really good artists to do it? And at various points, we thought it isn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Well, it t- it took two years or more than two years, um, culminating in the auction at Christie's, which raised over seven hundred thousand pounds. So it was a fan- it was a great success, but a lot of work over over two years. Yeah, so I bet that was you know absolutely huge for them. I bet they like couldn't have been happier. I, th- I think there were t- there were various aspects. You know, when we when we talked to them about it, there was the money that they raised directly from the selling of of the art, but also it it got so much traction in the press that it highlighted the issue. So they got they've got lots of help and lots of donations outside of the auction just because people were aware of it because it was a very news newsworthy thing to to do so has it resulted in it being rebuilt well it's an it's an ongoing process right. so they're they're busy rebuilding it and they're they're using the money right now so they probably need a bit more money if people want to yeah yeah contribute. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so another one which kind of had a really good uh you know ethical kind of part to it was your coffee versus gangs campaign and the thing which really struck me about this was I just imagined it was probably a bit of a logistical nightmare to make happen. And, you know, oftentimes as creatives, you'll come up with the most amazing ideas, but then it's like, how do we actually yes. feasibly go yes. about creating this? Yes, again, another very long project, probably two years in the making. Um, and this was a situation where the project didn't exist. The, the gang... The gangs being sort of redeployed to, to grow coffee beans it didn't exist. Sometimes a client might say to you, this this thing exists, we need to advertise it. But this was the idea. So the programme needed to be creative. And then the work around it, the, the, the film with the story being told on the tattoos, um, and it worked in lots of other channels. And we made uh, some content films probably about eight three-minute films showing the progress of the of the gang members, uh, all of that. So, again, a tremendous amount of work. And, again, various occasions when we thought it wasn't going to happen, it was going to fall apart, but but it was pushed through. And that's still ongoing to this day, isn't it? Yes. Well, it's. I think it's now back on, back on TV and the programme is still going. And um, what's great about that is it... It's one IPA effectiveness paper as well. So, in a market where you know a lot, a lot of the competitors talk about taste. It's all about the taste. It's all about the uplifting, 
feeling you get from coffee. It was something completely different, and it was was very effective. Um, your f- most famous camp, or I believe your most famous campaign today, is the audio uh, audio Audi Bull campaign. Am I, yes. Um, well, I worked on on Audi. I was the creative director on Audi for about four years, and before that, I had worked on Audi as a creative while it be. So I knew Audi intimately. Let's put it that way. And it was a, an account that everybody wanted to work on. I made a lot of ads on it, and then when I was creative director. Over four years, again, we made lots of ads, and Audi, probably my favourite client ever, um, because they were so receptive to goods, ideas, and to making work, and we made lo- lots of different campaigns in in, in print. Uh, DNAD is full of outdoor and press ads for Audi. Um, we launched a, a TV channel. Believe it or not, in in when when you could have a channel on Sky, really before you'd have an online or a Facebook site, and we made programming. So we made every month we would make half you know a few half hour programs about various things to do with Audi, their skiing sponsorship or their new model or whatever. And they had a they had a fantastic attitude to advertising. Um, they weren't they were very long termists. They weren't short termists, so they would. They would worry about the health of the brand over time and they were never worried about the effect of the next ad they were going to make. So um, very empowering for an agency. And I can remember times where I'd, I'd go and see them in Milton, Milton Keynes with some ideas and you'd walk out and you were going into production. No research, no thinking about it, no showing up the line. You would literally show them an idea and they would give you go ahead to make it there and then i think it's fascinating that some brands that seem so big from the outset actually it tends to come down to a handful of people that are the decision makers and it, it, i think it's confidence confidence in the brand uh they were being successful and obviously when, when a brand starts not being successful then it all <laughs> gets a lot more difficult and people are a lot more wary of making decisions so i guess you know i was fortunate to ride the wave of of Audi success and and them allowing you know BBH to make great work over that time. I suppose they're in a difficult uh, mode at the moment with the transitions to new forms of. Yes. Yeah. Well, a lot of yeah, a lot of em- emphasis on on cars and engines and emissions and and all the rest of it. Um, but a very strong brand and you know that. They almost had a policy of not wanting to sell more cars, just wanting to sell the same number of cars but at a higher price. So it was about making the brand more premium. Yeah. So don't don't sell any more cars. Just make sure we can sell them for more and more money. So that's a different and again a different model. Well, I guess the uh, UK grime scene with the German whips putting uh, into that <laughs> the pr- pr- premium uh, look and feel. Yeah. But anyway, um, so. Uh, are there any campaigns in particular that I've failed to mention that you're particularly proud of? I think, um, you know, if I've got my grown-up hat on, HSBC is something I've worked on for the last sort of nine years, very strong brand, a, I guess a conservative tone of voice. But, we, we, you know, we've done lots of interesting things on HSBC over the last few years. Um, you know, again, t- tricky times for banks. Um but yeah, 
really good work. Um, I worked on Levi's when I was at BBH as a creative and as a creative director, and again, an amazing brand during that period. Uh, not not such a relevant brand anymore, I think, and maybe not such a big spender in the advertising space, and lots more competitors. Um, but again, you know, you, people even now talk about brands being part of culture. Levi's in the 90s, was t the advertising was, was totally part of culture. Um, and it was so exciting to be working on that during that period. I'm curious to know, for example, a bank, which is just as dry as it, you, you could get from the outset. Like, what, what, what is an insight that you have that helped like you know that you've how do you define a, a bank from one another like say i'll just give you an example from uh, my own experiences actually with hsbc versus the bank that i use which is lloyd's and it didn't come down to any of the campaigns or at least i didn't believe it did maybe i was subconsciously influenced but it came down to the fact i had to use that bloody pin pad thing to to get on my yes. banking yes and for me as a millennial i was like that's the bar to entry is too high um but like, how do you convince people to switch bank? Again, it's it's a bit like the Audi model of of it's not about s selling more cars; it's about charging more money. And, and banking is not necessarily about getting people to switch bank. It's m more complex than that. It's about again hi having higher net worth people who come to your bank, not just anybody coming to your bank. Then it's about what are you selling them? So it's about Often you're advertising to existing customers, someone who has a current account. Maybe you want them to get their mortgage from HSBC. So there's probably there's lots of different angles of, of what you're telling people. But again, like any brand, it's about what is the brand personality. And that's what how banks help to differentiate themselves by doing things in a certain way is, is the differentiator. I mean, when I was doing Audi... I used to say, you know, every summer there'd be the the campaign for the cabriolet and there'd be the Audi, the VW, the the, the Ford, the Citroën, the Peugeot. They would all go, right, there's a cabriolet. And basically what everybody's saying, you can take the top off and you can be in the sun. But what's, what's different about the advertising for those different cars is the brand personality. Is it humorous? Is it serious? Is it stylish? How does it look? It's all the other things, not just what you're saying about about the product. Okay. Um, so, um, obviously, you don't become one of the most respected creative directors without being able to sell ideas to clients. So I was wondering if you've picked up any tips over the years for how to sell in ideas. I think it's horses for courses. I think they're... It's about understanding the client and what makes them tick, makes what makes them operate the way that they do, and you and you need to understand them. There's no there's no set rule. I think it's the same with pitching. You you know they want some clients want to be sold to, some clients don't want to be sold to. Uh, so it's it's not easy. I think. I mean, I, I suppose partly to do with my own personality it's the kind of quiet honest approach <laughs> <laughs> you're not trying to pull the wool over their eyes you're 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 making sense you're taking them through the logic and you're telling them why you think it's going to work 
So you're a bit more of a rationalist. You go. I, I guess I'm a rationalist because I because I think they're rationalists. Um, I think, you know, walking in and saying we've done this amazing poll set, it's just great, isn't it? Don't you love it? Isn't it? It's not going to be that effective. So um, going back to banks, I'm thinking HSBC. So you've got global bank and long term investment. They're the two things which like come to my mind. Mm. So that they're quite rational things. They are, but but HSBC's advertising is very emotional. Right. So it's taking those rational messages and making them emotional. Right. That's what HSBC have been doing. Um, I noticed that uh, quite a lot of your um, your commercials tend to have like a regional accent element to them. And as a Geordie yourself, I wondered if uh, that's something that's happened naturally or whether it's something you actually try and kind of put into your well, work. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe them as, as regional. I'd describe them as interesting. I, I think, I personally think vo- voices are something that people don't pay enough attention to. And I'm a big believer in finding interesting voices and not going to the usual you know, voice banks or the usual agents who have voices. Often they're not using their own voice. They've, they've got seven different accents that they can put on. So, so I, I like people's natural voice and I like finding interesting voices. That might even mean using people in the agency. It might, it might mean using someone, you've been in the shop, someone served you in the shop and you think, oh, they've got quite an interesting voice. You can use, you can get them to come and, and they, they probably love it, you know, to come in, in a recording studio and read something out for you. And then you've got a, you've got an unusual, interesting voice, not the usual kind of. But you put most people in front of a camera and they're just useless. I think voices are different, and but yes, and it's it's trial and error. You're experimenting. You might try these voices; they don't work. But when they do work, then then people think, oh, that's a really interesting voice. Who's that voice? And you think, oh, actually, it's the it's the guy in the ticket office at the station, you know? It's yeah. that, that kind of finding your own, um, you know, digging around for your, for your own things, not just going to the places where you get those things from. So you've actually produced a lot of TV commercials, and so, or uh, not produced necessarily, but been part of. Mm. Um, what lessons have you learned over the you know being on set several times that you could potentially pass on to young creatives i think I, well i i have a very simple adage and probably oversimplistic but to me when i look at work film work or t- or tv ads that really work and and, and win awards there 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 are three things about them that invariably come up one is long length so it's 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 long it's got great music, and there's no voiceover on it. To me, the, the, those are th- th- basic three things that leads to good work. Because you, if it's long, you've got time to tell the story. You've got time for the consumer to take it in and understand it. You've got time for the director to work his magic. Um, great music, obviously, is, is is paramount. You know, if it's a great track that that links well in with the action. It's all working beautifully and you're enjoying it. And then what you don't want is a voiceover reading out the brief, a voice that explains what's going on to the viewer. You want to allow the viewer to understand it in their own time, get to the conclusion, 
get to the punchline of the ad and, and the whole thing's a joy. So it's those, to me, it's those three things working in tandem. So for, I'm just trying to... So if, say, for example, um, Guinness Surfer, which starts with a voiceover. Is that... But, well, but that's, okay. it, it's not telling you then, the brief because no, it's abstract. I don't, yes, I, I don't like voiceovers, but you can find examples where there's a voice on it I wouldn't describe that as a voiceover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, vo- to me, a voiceover is when it says, here at blah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, yeah. we like to think <laughs> that da-da-da, therefore we'll do this, this and this for you, etc. You know, so it's just, it's not allowing you to watch the film. What is your approach when it comes to coming up with ideas? So I know that you're the ECD now, but obviously in the past... Um, and also, where do you try and seek unique inspiration? And if so, where do you tend to look? I mean, I would say coming up with I would let's part coming up with ideas for a minute. Let's talk about evaluating ideas. I think you can put a process in place where you you know how to look at ideas and decide whether they're right or wrong. Um, I th- I think start I always think start wide. So there are very th- various things you could say, then there are various ways in which you could say them. And you need to spend time investigating those, investigating the things, investigating the ways that, and then you start evaluating them and think is it interesting? Is it really saying what the thing that we want to say? Is it new? Is it interesting? All those things and then you start to narrow it down after that. Um, in terms of inspiration, I again, you know, the the worst question for a creative is where do you get ideas from? But I I'm a sucker for Sky Sky Arts Channel documentaries on Sky Arts, you know, about Matisse or you know John Lennon even or you know artist designers. Just it's so interesting, and you work out what they think, what things went wrong in their career, mistakes they made, work that wasn't good, work that was great. It's it's so enjoyable as as a creative person to watch other creative people and and what they've done and what, what they stood for and, and all the rest of it. I think that's inspiring. Um, I like listening to the radio. I think Radio Four is is a whole world of knowledge. Serious knowledge, academic knowledge, but also trivia. You, you know, if you listen to Radio Four for like for a, for a couple of days or a few hours a week, you just find out interesting stuff, really interesting stuff. Even if it's about trivial things, if it's even if it's about pets or food or or traveling to another country, it's just you you get this knowledge, and then you you might might be a year or two years later, you get a project, and you think. Shit, I remember that thing I heard on the radio about X and Y. That's interesting and could could be good good for this project. So I think it's just stimulating yourself in different ways and not just looking at things that you already know you're interested in, but allowing yourself to be told stuff that you didn't know you were. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We're interested in. So I've got a bit of a, a, a personal philosophy, which is that I find music to be a bit of a waste of time personally because I, I always say, right, if in a choice between a podcast and, and listening to X number of hours of music, I know I'm going to get more out in personal development from listening to, say, podcasts or yeah. TED Talks or something. Yeah. Um, but then obviously music is so intrinsic to good ads, for example. Um, do you tend to have a similar thought or do you, do you still well, listen I'd, to music? I think... You need a knowledge of music and it, because a mu- music is a great requirement of good advertising. But what I rail against is when the idea is music. So I am honestly fed up with the idea is we get this DJ or we get this band or we get this... Or you can remix it yourself. And I'm, I'm so bored with it. It's, it's been done thousands and thousands of times. But it, it's born out of... Youth like music, therefore let's have an idea that's got something to do with music. And it's all so boring. But there's definitely like a kind of move towards um, uh, like branded content that feels a little bit uh, less uh, addy in that you have to consume it and more uh, links into what you already consume. So whilst I completely agree with you, if your audience is specifically into X, Y, why wouldn't you intertwine them well because i think it's lazy and i think well, lots of other brands are doing it as well so just because if, if you're aiming at a youth audience for instance what are you saying that any kind of snack any kind of drink any kind of trainer any kind of clothing any kind of this any kind of that the answer is always music because they're interested in music no but for, I, you know i rail against that say for example i was looking to advertise to you and I knew you were a Radio 4 listener, I might put on a show on Radio 4, which is like an advertising medium that's just not... I think I think being where you know that person's going to be, there's, 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 a, there's a certain validity in that, but let's you could be somewhere where, you, where a more unusual media positioning... Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, it's why everybody... It's why the middle of the X Factor and, and the middle of Downton Abbey was so expensive because the media company will profile the target audience and it turns out it's every it's it's the same person for every product. It's the sort of middle class Sunday night viewer or the middle class Saturday night viewer who are at home. Da, 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 therefore, we must be in the X Factor. We can be more inventive than that. Um, okay. Couldn't ask. Obviously, everyone has their their uh, their highs and their lows. Could you talk about an idea that uh, you thought was great that fell on its face? Um, I've there has been many ideas that I thought were great and were going to win awards and then didn't win anything at the award shows. Um, 
which is disappointing. And you, and I still, you know, look back on some of them and think, oh, they they just didn't get it, or you know, what what went wrong. But you know, even the the greatest ad people are not right all of the time. You know, because it's an opinion based thing. Um, there was is there one in particular? Well, there was a, there was an, a, a pre, there was a press ad that I made for um, for Audi, which I absolutely loved. So that basically, they they brought out the A8, which was made of aluminium. And at the time, one of the trendy trendy objects was a Philip Stark um, lemon squeezer. That was famously made of aluminium. So I did this press ad, which was a picture of Philip Stark's lemon squeezer, and it's another line. The headline was, "Is this the future of car design?" Of course, it looked completely ridiculous, and I thought it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, I got no traction whatsoever. Oh, that's funny. Um, of all the people that you've brushed shoulders with, I, I thought it'd be nice if maybe you could talk about three people who have particularly stood out to you and maybe some of the character traits that you admired in them. Um, or creatively, at least. Well, I've worked, I worked very closely with John O'Keefe, who's now the global creative director of WPP, and we worked very effectively together uh, and we, because we were very different. And... One of the things I used to say about John was he was too good at writing scripts because if we had quite an ordinary idea, he would write it in a way that made it sound like it was great and then sometimes we made those ads and they weren't very good. So I blame him for that because <laughs> he'd, he'd written them up too well. Um, John Hegarty, obviously, who, you know, I, I sat sort of... 20 feet from for 17 years uh, a really inspirational figure inspiring also very hard you know kind of upset me many times because because uh, I valued his opinion so much when when I didn't get it then it was you know it was at various points quite crushing uh, but also a great support and you know and I did very well there and he he, he was a great you know, champion of that. You're the third person to say John. I mean, admittedly, I've had uh, yourself, Rosie and Tim on, mm. um, all people that had been mm. at BBH, mm. but it's quite a testament to him that everyone saw him as a someone to look up to. Like what? I think, look, there, there were various points where BBH were making the best ads in the world, so there's that, but also his longevity, I think, because because he's, he went on for so long doing good things. And 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 when you know when I think about some some of the, the stuff I learned from him, some of his adages, some of the way he thought about things, you know, they've sort of stayed with me till now. Because so like now he started the garage or whatever it's mm. called. That kind of so he's moved himself into the tech space, which is a quite a, a forward-facing move. Obviously. I wouldn't necessarily call it the tech space. No, it's the idea space. Right. So they are doing they're doing lots of projects. Some of them are tech, and some of them are not tech. Um, he, he, I think he's interested in startups with really good ideas. Um, what's the worst piece of advice that you hear being dispensed in Adland? Um, I know this is going to be controversial. Uh, collaboration. I think collaboration is overrated. Everybody talks about it. They don't really know what it means. And I, 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 th I think collaboration can 
make things difficult. It can make things not as pure. It can make things... So what, I don't know, there's that, there's that old expression, a, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. So I think, okay, collaboration has its place, but pe- people talk about it like it's this amazing, liberating thing, and I, I'm not sure I agree with that. So what's an example of a collaboration? You mean um, like a get an artist to work on an ad? or? Well, I think it's used and people don't really know what it means. It right. just sounds good, and it means let's get this tech guy, let's get this musician, let's get this artist and throw them together and see what happens and, you know, invariably nothing happens. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very optimistic on that one, then. Um, you so- know, well, I mean, just to follow up on that, I just, you know, nothing beats thinking. Yeah. Let's just Let's just go and think about something rather than let's talk about it and collaborate over it. Let's think about it. So it's interesting you say think about it because in our industry, which is from the outside, like supposed to be a creative industry, it seems to me like there's actually a lot more just like rational thought that goes into to stuff than. Well, it's not. It doesn't need to be rational thought. It's thinking and and making things deliberate. You know, didn't Jackson Pollock said, "I've thought about every every splash, every stroke on that painting. I've thought about it. It's not random." Because it is about considering things, even if they're not logical. Okay. Um, what's the best or most worst, best or most worthwhile investment you've ever made? It could be time, money. Um. Okay. When I was at Sarchi's before I went to BBH. I was a junior stroke middleweight creative with, and I started working with John O'Keefe and we basically decided that we were going to try and get ahead and, and what we did was we worked every weekend for about six months and that's how we got ahead. We worked every weekend for six months and it meant that we were doing more, we were thinking of more things and I guess that six months where we were doing that is... is held us instead because we then you know we progressed you know we went to BBH we did this and that but it was because we made that short term effort to, so to you do ba- something if you imagined it like a trajectory chart basically you elevated yourself so that your future would just well we, we wanted to get ahead of everyone else and I guess spending time is easier than just saying we're going to be cleverer you know you, you know you can't just be cleverer you've got to You've got to find a way of putting some effort effort into it. You know, I was I'm quite a big believer in timekeeping because I think you you can kid yourself in some ways. You know, if you roll in, into work at ten and you've what have you done between eight and ten? Usually nothing. If you get to work early, you know you can do you can do stuff. Yeah. You know, so I I, I know people say, oh, it's like office hours and you can have an idea anyway. To me, it's about applying yourself. So are you quite um, um, a ritual kind of person? As in, do you say, right, I'm going to do this at this time, blah, 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 in order to... Kind of. I mean, I do, I, but I do believe in mornings. My best, think, my best thinking and my best time is in the, is in the morning. Uh, I think, you know, by, by mid-afternoon, I'm thinking of the same things as I was in the morning. So I think it's about refreshing and then applying. 
slightly different subject, but um, I noticed that you like to retweet people. <laughs> yes. And uh, I can tell that you weren't very happy with the choice to leave the uh, EU. No. So I was wondering if you could explain why. I, th- I think we're kidding ourselves that it's going to be better, and I think we're in this honeymoon period where we're pretending it's okay. And let's remember, we still haven't left the EU. We're still operating under the, all the benefits of the EU. The pound has devalued 15%. Inflation is starting to rise, and it's. I think in two or three years' time, you know, we'll we'll regret it. We'll start thinking, why did we do that? You know, I read reports every day. Foreign companies, European companies, are now not getting their supplies from UK businesses. So car manufacturers in France are now not using UK supplies of parts. All of this takes time to to filter through, and I think economically we're going to be in trouble. Um, I just don't like this sort of nationalistic, jingoistic attitude that... um, the EU are full of bureaucrats who tell us what to do. It's, it's absolute bullshit. Most of the decisions that have made have improved the quality of life. Employment law, uh, you know, the quality of beaches. Everything has improved because of the EU. Like mobile phone calls are, are cheaper. We're, we're basically letting that, all that go for this future where we don't know any, we're not going to have any of that protection. And farmers, for instance, you know, it's very easy to say, well, if we're not selling to Europe, we'll just sell this this produce to America. Well, who's going to make those deals? And already the the, the dollar's 15%, you know, we've, we're already going to be paying 15% more for American goods. I think the whole thing is shambolic. And I think people are just pretending or they don't, they don't even Remainers are now saying, oh, well... It's what we voted for, therefore we've just got to get on with it. Well, it's bullshit because we're going to be in trouble. So what's your uh, plan of action? <laughs> That's a very difficult one. I'm <laughs> no, not, no, well, just, I basically, only, only because I, you said that. I refuse to accept the vote. Right. So people that will say, uh, yes, but it's democratic. It was all based on lies. Um, and I, I, I read a quote the other day, a Winston Churchill quote, who says... Um, you, you can undermine de- de- uh, democracy is undermined by fi- talking for five minutes with the average voter because I don't. I think they were put in an impossible position. They voted on something that they didn't. They didn't understand. Yeah, I I completely agree with you on that. Um, I don't. It, the what fa- uh, infuriated me around the time is that you'd turn on the TV and it would be some local person who worked in the shop. What do you think about leaving the EU? And it's yeah. like, you don't know diddly squat. I don't know diddly squat. 99.9% of people didn't know what the hell they were Also, on. culturally, I think it's ridiculous. We're so part of Europe. I mean, if you look at... Um, you know, I actually went to the, the, the Remain March about six weeks ago, and... There was there were so many placards and posters with quirky, interesting. It was like homemade advertising. It was so interesting, and uh, someone had made a, a, a poster, and um, it was basically a picture of a tin of spam, and it said British food before the EU. And you go, what? Do we really want to dial the clock back to to, to, to where were these, you know, sort of narrow narrow-minded sort of meat and two veg 
you know, I, I just, I think emotionally and economically, I think it's so wrong. It's for our industry especially, which is kind of, you know, as much as it gets its criticism for, for not being the most diverse, it is a diverse industry. So it's, very, it's, it's very diverse and we we like diversity, don't we? Or we get accused of being kind of southern elitist because we like diversity. You know, it's just it's ridiculous. Um Slightly changing tact, maybe it, maybe it's relevant, but we're in kind of tumultuous times of change, as we've just mentioned. What do you, what do you think agencies are slow to adapt to? I think they've maybe, yes, it's about adaption, but it's also about confidence and belief in 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 doing what's right. So I, I, I think you know, chase, chasing the next the next the next topic or the or the or the next perceived modern way of doing things is we've got to be careful about because the fundamentals are still the same it's all it's still about emotion it's about it's building brands through emotion and um yeah it's a difficult one i mean a lot a lot of agencies are trying to work that out you know the 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 way they 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 charge how much what are they worth what is the, what's their thinking worth is is all being debated right now? It's very it's very difficult. The reason I so obviously because I'm reading at the moment about uh, the printing press and and how kind of in the late uh, mid to late eighties, early nineties, obviously all of that industry just like died overnight and became computers. But then they were managed by you know like a team of people or whatever. Um, Times can change really rapidly, and and it's when you're immersed in advertising and you are working the long hours, and senior people are, are comfortable or whatever. That there is a, a a reason why they wouldn't necessarily um, make the changes necessary to to keep advertising fresh. And it seems like a lot of talents moving over to the tech industry, and they're using innovative methods in order to generate a lot of money, which is you know ultimately what clients want. Um, and so, yeah, no, I was just interested to see if you had an opinion on it. I know. No, I, go on. I know it's 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 when the platitudes and the cliches coming come out, but it's a it's about clever clever ideas, interesting ideas that solve problems, you know. And I, and I think a lot of things get undermined, don't they? Ultimately, you know, programmatic was incredible, amazing programmatic. We've got to keep saying the word prog- programmatic. We've got to embrace programmatic. And then what happened? Programmatic went a bit wrong, didn't it? Because people were getting sent things that they shouldn't be sent. They were seeing films they shouldn't see because of the, alg- the programmatic a- algorithms. So suddenly it's not the holy grail anymore. So, you know, let- let's take a measured view of these things. Um, I'll move on to the quick fire questions and then I've got <laughs> two more questions for you and that's it. So uh, I can ask you what your favourite book uh, is or books that you recommend maybe? Um, my favourite book is a William Boyd book called The New Confessions and it's about uh, somebody, an Englishman who goes to America to try and make a film and it's the story of him trying to make the film and it's, I, I really like it. Uh, favorite movie? Favorite movie? Uh, Get Carter. Okay. Um, what event would you recommend people go to? Sorry, before before you answer that one, actually, why Get Carter? 
uh, it's set in the 70s, it's set in Newcastle, it's got Michael Caine in it, uh, <laughs> who's, who's a cockney, even though he was meant to be born in Newcastle. Uh, it's full of great scenes, and uh, dialogue's funny, and it's very earthy, sort of gangster film from the 70s. It's, it's, and the soundtrack's great. Okay, yeah, and then favourite event? Favourite event? Hmm... Event. So you're not one for cans and all that stuff. Uh, well, can cliche, but it, well, okay, you know, everybody hates can and everybody loves can. I mean, it's it's like a love hate relationship. It's it's um, it's a ridiculous thing. But are there, are there any museums you, you go to on the regular? Um, well, Tate Modern, yeah, but I mean, I. I wouldn't particularly recommend it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, it's, not, it's not on your list of recommendations <laughs> well, when people visit London, no. Um, well, the London Eye, I think, is quite cool. Yeah. To anyone who's coming to London who haven't been up there, it's it's only half an hour and it's, yeah. it's good. There you go. Um, so before I ask you the final question, what have you got going on at the moment? Where can people get in touch with you if you want them to get in touch with you? <laughs> um... Do I want them to get in touch with me? No, I, uh, I've, I'm not doing very much. I've still a lot of work I was involved in will, is being will be entered for Cannes, so I'm hoping some of it's going to win. So hopefully, what, like what, what, Glasgow School of Art for one. Yeah. Um, the uh, domestic violence NCDV film, you know, the the dance thing and and some Kit Kats, various other things. So we'll we'll see how successful that is. And if people want to get in touch with you. Uh, I'm sure they, they'll know somebody who might know me. <laughs> <laughs> Get in touch with me and I can always pass right, you on. Fine. Yeah. Uh, and then if you could offer one piece of advice to help people lead a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? Final question. Well, I mean, better, more meaningful life. Try and stop worrying. Try and get good sleep. I mean, I, I, I think having a really nice bed with nice bedding, spend, invest in your bed, I would say, so that you can sleep really ni- really well. That That's going to help you in, in everything you do. So get a new duvet, a new bed, new sheets, and just make your bed a sanctuary. I think that's really nice, <clears throat> modest advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Russell, I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, the other thing, I just really appreciate your honesty. You've been really blunt about right. it, and uh, it's nice to hear. So, yeah, thank you for coming on. And, um, yeah, until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me Mailing List. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now.